Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoCellaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 9th, 2020, and this is show number 796. Well, we had a nice time this weekend. We had uh, all of our kids over with all their grandkids. Everybody's been living in their own little bubbles, and we combined our bubbles briefly and uh, had a lot of fun at our house for the first time in a long time. So uh, the show might be a little bit shorter than usual because I took a whole weekend off, and I hope that's okay with you guys. Sorry, Stephen. <laughs> anyway. Well, this week I had Dr. Helma Vanderlinden on Chit Chat Across the Pond to describe to us exactly how she created the Taming the Terminal book as a software project. I struggled with whether to call this a light episode or not because it is super nerdy. But the fun thing is that you don't have to actually understand how to do what she did to really appreciate the amazing work that she did do. I personally couldn't do 80% of what she did even if I did have a PhD like she does. It was really fun to learn of all the different open source tools that made this effort possible. Bart's favorite thing about our book is that the community of open source developers who put all of these tools together and shared them with us allowed us to have our very own open source book. And that Helma did it all for the love of the community just, you know, makes it all the icing on the top. It's a joyful listen for this podcast episode, and I hope you'll check it out. You can, of course, listen over at podfeet.com or in your podcatcher of choice by searching for Chit Chat Across the Pond or Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. Now, I'm going to add it to the programming by Stealth Feed, too, but I wanted to check first with Bart and make sure it's okay with him to give that audience something fun and nerdy to listen to while we're working on the new episodes of Taming the Terminal. Bart gave, us a, an, and gave me an enthusiastic thumbs up on that, so I'll be pushing that out probably tomorrow. Back in March, I wrote a blog post entitled, I Don't Really Understand Why People Choose Android. I wrote it because I was so frustrated that my seven-month-old Motorola G7 Android phone was not getting recent security updates. At the time, the phone was three months behind, which is three updates, in getting Android 9 critical updates. I worked with Google and Motorola and never got anyone who would come close to taking responsibility for the updates. Google said it wasn't their problem because I got the phone from Motorola. And Motorola said they were at the mercy of Google on when the updates would be pushed to them. After writing the article, I posted it and I added Motorola in my tweet of frustration. Well, at Moto underscore support answered me in a DM in which they gave me the same response that I'd gotten on the phone, which was to install the Windows-only Lenovo Moto Smart Assistant. The person attempting did attempt to help me, but without any tools to do so, was uh, that was someone named Rika. Our conversation ended with her saying on March 16th, let's see if there's any other option we can try here, Rika. Well, my biggest frustration with the experience was that from what I could find, this seven-month-old phone might never get updated again. Imagine my surprise when a little over a week ago, I got a DM on Twitter from Rika, that was Rika from Motorola. She wrote, Hi, Allison. We're following up in regard to your phone. Please check under Settings, System, System Updates for any pending security updates for your phone. Rika. Huh. She also suggested that if that didn't work, try pulling my SIM card and trying to get the update. Well, I was really shocked that they followed up, and I was even more surprised when I checked for updates and I got Android 10. And get this. It's late July, and uh, it was late July when I wrote this, 
And my Android security patch is June 1st, 2020. So I actually have an Android phone that is getting updates. I am pleasantly, happily shocked to say that my device is not dead to me and that Motorola support actually came through to me after all. Now, time will tell whether I'll continue to get regular updates, but after this, I'm a happy little Android user. I'm sure you think I'm on the payroll of Rogue Amoeba by now. I am not. And in fact, they're not an advertiser. But this week, I want to tell you about yet another great app they make called SoundSource. This week, Rogue Amoeba released SoundSource 5, and it's even better than before. SoundSource is a menu bar app that allows you to control not only your microphone input and speaker output, but it can actually control application audio. I'll explain more about that shortly, but you may be asking what problem we're trying to solve first. If you've been a Mac user for any length of time, you know that you can control the input and output devices and alert sounds using the sound preference pane. You probably know you can view the speaker controls in your menu bar to let you switch output devices and change the volume. You may not know that holding down the option key while clicking on the sound icon in the menu bar reveals the ability to switch your input microphone as well. While this works just fine, it's cumbersome to open sound preferences, and the menu bar app is so limited, it's really not that useful. Another big problem these days is that audio is playing from so many different applications, and we don't always want the audio to go to the same output or to be at the same volume. You may have YouTube playing in a Chrome window, audio from a VoIP call in Zoom or Skype, your iPhone rings on your Mac and you answer it there, and maybe you've got audio coming from messages when you're screen sharing or using Discord for audio chat. Obviously, you're not doing all of these things at the same time, but each use case can require changing your output device and volume. Another problem is that your Mac may have really low volume speakers and you wish you could turn them up louder. Maybe the speakers are tinny sounding and you'd love to bring up the bass and make them sound better. Well, let's see what SoundSource can do and whether it will miraculously solve any of these problems. <laughs> Small spoiler, of course it does. SoundSource is a menu bar app that will replace sound in your menu bar. Let's walk through what you'll find when you hit the SoundSource menu bar icon. When it flips down, you'll see two major sections, system and application. System is where you'll find your output, you know, your speakers, your headphones. Input will be your microphones, and then there's sound effects. Right off the bat, you've got quicker access to all of the controls than opening sound preferences, just by having those in your menu bar. Just like sound preferences, with these three control areas in SoundSource, you can adjust volume and redirect which device is used for the audio. But you can do a lot more than that. For example, if you tap the chevron to the right of the output controls, it reveals several options. For example, you can change the balance of your speakers, you can change the sample rate from 44.1 kHz to 48 kHz, which you normally have to open audio MIDI setup in order to get to, and you can add audio unit effects right from SoundSource. By default, SoundSource has a 10-band equalizer turned on for the output volume, or the output profile, I should say, and the profile for the 10-band equalizer is set to flat. If you tap on it, you can change it to bass booster, for example, to make your tinny speakers sound better. Of course, there's more profiles, and you can also modify every one of the 10 bands manually. You can add many more Apple audio unit effects via dropdown with effects, you know, like reverb and compressors and more. 
And I want to mention right here that if you're already a SoundSource user, I want to point out some of the improvements in SoundSource 5 over previous versions. The most significant difference you'll notice right away is that the user interface has been drastically improved. In general, everything is much more compact. If I'd had one complaint about SoundSource 4, it was that the window was huge, but it isn't anymore. If we take the example of the 10-band equalizer I just mentioned for your sound output device, in SoundSource 4, the equalizer controls for each band were embedded in the main SoundSource window. But in SoundSource 5, you tap on the words 10-band equalizer and it pops out to the side of the window instead, so it's not taking up space until you need to access it. SoundSource 5 is full of these space-saving improvements, and I'll mention more as I go along. Below the system controls for output, input, and sound effects, you'll find a section for applications. Speaking of space saving in SoundSource 5, I love how you can fold up the application section when you don't need to see it. More than half the time I need to mess with my sound, it's not a specific application I want to control, so having just the system settings showing is awesome. But if you find you more often mess around with your applications, then you'll be happy to know you can hide the system settings and just see applications. Probably the coolest feature of SoundSource is that each application has its own volume control and can be muted with a single click. I find this incredibly useful in my daily life. Here's an example. This week, SpaceX had a test firing of their Starship test vehicle. The test was on again, off again over the course of two days. Steve was keeping tabs on it the whole time, almost like a control center. He had four different windows going of different views of the, uh, the possible launch. And anyway, he let me know when it looked like it might be about to happen. I launched Safari and I went to the Everyday Astronauts YouTube channel and set the volume on Safari to only about 10%. Now, if I concentrated, I could hear when things were happening, but most of the time it was quiet enough that it didn't bother me. I didn't disturb my system volume, which I kept up at about 50%. By the way, watching what, a, uh, what looked like a giant grain silo fly was really cool, and there's a link to it in the show notes. Anyway, you get to choose which applications show in SoundSource 5 by using the Add Favorite button at the bottom left, and you can click on the star next to an app to remove it from the favorites list. You can also drag the favorite applications up and down to put them in the order that makes the most sense to you. Even if an app is not a favorite, it will show up in the list when you start to play any audio through that app, and then it'll disappear when the audio stops. In addition to being able to control each application's volume and mute them individually, you can redirect each app to a different output. Maybe you always want Apple Music to go to your nice external desk speakers, but you always want your Zoom calls to go to your headphones. No more switching back and forth. All apps go where you want them, and they stay there. Every app can have added effects, similar to how it works for system output. By default, you'll see the same 10-band equalizer, but you'll also see something called volume overdrive. I'll get to that in a minute, but first I want to explain something called magic boost. You'll see a small icon next to the volume control for the system output and all of your favorite applications you can listen to under a heading labeled boost. That's the magic boost icon. When enabled, Magic Boost increases the volume of quiet audio, but it leaves louder portions untouched. You can kind of think of Magic Boost as a real-time leveler. But if you want to take your speakers past what you thought they could do, then you activate what's called Volume Overdrive. You'll see an on-off toggle, and then you can choose from 1x to 4x volume, 
for volume overdrive. By default, volume overdrive is set to 1x, and if you click on the 2x, it won't actually get twice as loud. Instead, you'll see the volume slider jump down halfway, but it will say 100%. I know that sounds funny, but if you move the slider up, that allows you to get very granular control over how much you overdrive the speakers. So the max of the slider is now 200%, but you could make it like 173 if you wanted. The same kind of adjustment happens when you go to 3x and 4x. Now, I think volume overdrive should probably be used sparingly to avoid distorted output, but with this level of control, it might, might provide an effect that helps you hear your audio better. In my testing, I set Skype to 3x with volume overdrive, and then I forgot about it. Later on, I looked back at SoundSource, and I noticed that the little speaker icon for, for Skype was looking decidedly shouty. They had this tiny graphic that was enough to remind me that I had changed it to something quite loud, and I was able to set it back to normal. Rogue Amoeba is best in class when it comes to the accessibility of their apps. They don't tack on accessible buttons after the fact. They start the design from the ground up with accessibility built into the foundation. I've tested SoundSource 4 before with VoiceOver, and I found that it worked really well. As I advanced through the app, it would tell me where I was, you know, output versus input versus Safari. And when I stopped moving with the keyboard shortcuts for VoiceOver, it would tell me a lot about what I could do at that point where I had, you know, kind of rested on something. But when I tested VoiceOver using SoundSource 5, it didn't behave as nicely as SoundSource 4. I am not an expert at, vo at voiceover. In fact, low novice would be a better description of my skills. So I would look to, like to hear from some of my visually impaired buddies before I say definitively that this needs some work. It's kind of hard to describe what the problems are because I seem to get inconsistent results. The focus would jump around somewhat unpredictably one time through, and then the next time it seemed to follow a natural progression that made sense. Sometimes buttons told me their function, and then the next time the same button would simply say, I'm a toggle, just guess what I am. Anyway, I'm sure someone, uh, I, I'd sure like someone more skilled than me to take a walk through it. If you do have voiceover skills and you check out SoundSource 5, please let me know how it works for you. I have sent my questions on this over to Rogue Amoeba, and they said they were able to reproduce some of the problems I was seeing, so I'm sure they'll get this sorted. And uh, it sounds like maybe I'm on to something here. But again, I'm not that good at voiceover, so I hate to say this doesn't work. I explained earlier that you can add favorite apps to SoundSource to control their audio, and under that same button, you can add special sources. These include Finder, Siri, Text-to-Speech, and VoiceOver. Having the ability to separately control the volume and sound profile for Siri and VoiceOver is pretty handy. I said up front that the new interface for SoundSource 5 is much more compact than its predecessor, but they even provided a window resize button that squishes it up even more. I love this because you can have it nice and wide when you're modifying things like the equalizer and all the other effects, but then you can make it nice and tight with just what you need showing the rest of the time when you're just using it to change things. A nice touch with Rogue Amoeba applications is that you can often tear off their windows so they can be floating. With SoundSource as a menu bar app, it pops down and then back out of the way when you click off of it or you hit escape. But I need to use SoundSource so often, I usually tear it off so that it floats at a location of my choosing and I always have access to its controls. It's nice that I can tighten it up and make it smaller now. SoundSource 5 comes with a few optional extra menu bar icons that might be useful. 
The main icon looks almost exactly like the system volume icon, and you used to be able to toggle it to a different look so you wouldn't get confused with the regular audio uh, button, but for some reason they took that out. Maybe they're really encouraging us to just disable the normal sound icon in our menu bars. In SoundSource 5 Preferences, you can enable three different menu bar meters for the default output device, the default input device, and active applications. Now, the first two are kind of obvious. You get a microphone icon and a speaker icon. And if audio is flowing through to either of those, a little meter next to them bounces up and down. In addition, clicking on those icons instantly disables their audio. This means you have a really quick way to mute your mic, which is something we all need. You can also choose to show active applications. Now don't get worried, this isn't going to be all of your applications, it's just whichever ones are making noise. So let's say you start playing a YouTube video in Chrome, a little monochrome version of the Chrome icon will appear. The meter is helpful, but even better, clicking on that icon instantly mutes Chrome. How many times has an app started to autoplay and you were scrambling for how to shut it up? Well, SoundSource could come in really handy for that. In my testing, I had a lot of trouble controlling Safari using SoundSource 5. It didn't respond to trying to mute it or control the volume. It also didn't show up in the menu bar for me when audio was playing. But here's the good news. I filed a bug report with Rogue Amoeba, and in a few hours, they were able to replicate the issues, and they're working on a fix as we speak. Like I mentioned, SoundSource 5 just came out. It's brand new. Now, I want to talk to you about my new favorite use case. When Steve and I do the live show, we have a nuisance-level problem for which I've been seeking a solution for the past couple of years. It's a nuisance, but it really gets on my nerve. It's like a thousand paper cuts. During the pre-show, before the video goes live on YouTube, we like to chat in audio to people listening in the Discord app. That's where we have our live chat. So they can hear us, we can hear each other, and uh, they type back to us. When the show goes live, though, we switch over to chatting using Mimo Live, the software that puts all the different video and audio sources together for YouTube. If we keep our headphones active on both Discord and Mimo Live the entire time, we hear each other twice, but with a slight delay, which is super annoying. So every time we switch from uh, Discord to Mimo Live back to Discord, every time we switch, which is three times per show, we both have to tell a given app to not let audio go to our headphones. So we're switching it on on one, off on the other one, off on that one, on on the other one, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Like I said, it's just a nuisance, but on Discord alone, there it's actually four mouse clicks. That gets old really fast. Well, I was showing Steve SoundSource 5, and we simultaneously realized that SoundSource is the perfect solution for this because the uh, both applications will show on our menu bar. So we just one click to mute Discord, one click to unmute Mimo Live. Now that's about as efficient as it could be. Now I know that isn't a top use case for you, but I bet if you start messing around with SoundSource, I'm sure you'll find your own interesting problems to be solved. SoundSource runs on macOS 10.13, that's High Sierra and up, with a free, fully functional trial available for download. I just tested it on the public beta of Big Sur, and it's not running there yet, but I'm sure they'll be working on it. They're always the type of people who are right on board when things get started. So by the time Big Sur is out, I'm sure it'll be working. SoundSource is normally only $39, but it's on sale for an introductory price with SoundSource 5. As of uh, right now, it's $29. 
If you enjoy, if you enjoy, well, if you do enjoy, but if you own a license of SoundSource 4, you can also get an upgrade to SoundSource 5 for only $19. If you bought SoundSource 4 after May 1st, it's a free upgrade. I was really glad to see that since I bought Steve a copy of SoundSource 4 just last week. So now he's upgraded to SoundSource 5 and he's loving it. I love SoundSource and I've been able to find some really creative solutions to my problems with it. So maybe you will too. If you enjoy the podcast, and I've got to assume you do because you are listening to this. I mean, I guess you could just really hate yourself and listen to things you don't like. But let's just take a, a, a guess here and suggest that you enjoy the podcast. I'd like you to consider making a donation to the show. Now, if you don't want to make a continuing contribution through Patreon, maybe you just want to make a one-time donation. We have that option too. Just go to podfeet.com slash PayPal and pick a dollar or new Israeli shekel or Malaysian ringgit, you know, any kind of amount in your currency that's right for you and your family. I'd really appreciate the help and hopefully not listening to any ads makes it worth it to you to help support the show. As a card-carrying Apple fan, you would think that I would be a big promoter of Apple messages, but I'm not. I seriously dislike this app. Instead of messages, my preferred communication tool is an app called Telegram from telegram.org. It's been one of my missions over the last five years to convert everyone with whom I ever want to chat over to Telegram. But in order to convince you, I must provide a problem to be solved. So let's make a nice list of everything annoying about Apple messages, shall we? As, fun as, as much as I love Apple's products, I don't think anyone should be forced to use them. If you love Android, no judging. I'm glad and I'm really happy you have something you love. You know what? Windows lovers are people too, right? Diversity is what makes the world a better place. Apple's Messages app can send text and other data to Apple devices using iMessage. But if we write to our Android brethren, the information is sent over SMS and S I'll get it yet, SMS and MMS. When we write to Apple people, we get a blue bubble. And when we write to Android people, it turns green. Now, if the same information could be sent to green or blue bubble people, you would think that we could all live in harmony, but the bubble color actually matters. Those colors matter because message threads get all tangled up all the time when you have a group of people of diverse colors talking to each other. I know young college student relatives of mine that have given up on Android because their friends end up leaving them out of conversations and events because it's so hard to fix when it breaks. And one of my favorite problems is when messages gives me a green bubble and I know darn well the person that I'm writing to uses iOS. I'm using favorite in air quotes there. I have a perfect example of that. Mike Potter, who runs MacStock, comes up green for me. And so I try to send him stuff and it doesn't work because if it's turning green, that means it's gotten messed up. Also, I use my Mac a lot to write on messages, and I often have trouble when I try to write to a green bubble person. It pretends to work, but hours later I look and I see the dreaded red exclamation point telling me, yeah, I never sent your message. <laughs> you know, you want to try again? It's just been sitting there doing nothing. I don't understand why it works sometimes and not other times, because sometimes I can write to green bubble people. Often I can respond to a message from them, but I can't start a conversation. It's annoying as all get out. I want a tool where everyone can play together and there are no second-class citizens. Speaking of tangled threads, 
Messages is the master at this. Last week, Steve and I had a very short three-way conversation in Messages with his mother, Merlee. All three of us are on iOS and macOS, so there's no excuses even about a green bubble person being the problem. I looked at my phone, and I had two message threads. One was called Steve and Merlee. The other one was called Merlee and Steve. They were the same conversation, but broken up into two message threads. So like every other message was coming in in different threads. Come on. It's like, well, he did like 10, no, like six messages back and forth and it got tangled. Oh, this was a good one. One time I was talking to Dave Hamilton, one-on-one in messages. And all of a sudden he noticed there was a third person injected into the conversation and he didn't recognize the number. I did. It was my son-in-law who I absolutely had not added to the conversation. Now, my favorite thing, though, is when there's a message thread on one device that's simply not even there on another device. Drives me bananas. Let's talk about search next. We have a message group called Paris Gang with our friends Dean and Suzanne. On my phone, if I search for Paris Gang, the group comes up with the latest conversation. On my Mac, if I search for Paris Gang, it does not find it. However, if I type in Dean's name, it will find Dean but it'll also show me the Paris Gang group that it couldn't find under the words Paris Gang. Well, recently I wanted to find a message my daughter Lindsay Tondi had sent to me. On my Mac, I tried searching for an unusual keyword so I could get right to the message, but it didn't return any results. I don't use messages often, so Lindsay wasn't visible in the top of the list, so instead I did a search for Lindsay Tondi. Returned one result. It was a text message notification thread from FedEx. Yeah, so that's great. I can't use search to find my own daughter. All right, how many times a day do you have to write oops and retype something in messages? All the time, right? You write something wrong or autocorrect or, you know, anything, any number of reasons you'd have a mistaken thing written into messages. And why can't we edit what we've written? There's even a standard format now for correcting yourself. Don't know if you know this. You put a star on the next message followed by the corrected term or phrase. I suppose we'd lose the fun of stupid autocorrect if we were able to edit our messages, but still, why can't we edit what we've written? Now, what about those times you write something and then realize you sent it to the wrong person? Why can't we delete what we've incorrectly sent? I get a big kick out of a well-executed animated GIF. In the live show chat room, Jason is the master at finding the perfect GIF to fold into the conversation. In fact, I'm going to watch the uh, messages right now and see if he's, uh, uh, I'm not sure if he's even there tonight, but he just always comes up with the perfect animated GIF and they're hilarious. But you know what makes me crazy? When they don't stop animating. Apple messages on my Mac are constantly jumping around, wiggling away, pulling my attention from what I'm trying to concentrate on. It's like those annoying ads that jump around when you're trying to read on a web page. So my solution is, I just quit messages most of the time on my Mac. Why can't we just make those animations stop? About the only thing I have good to say about messages is that they read out loud in my headphones, which is kind of nice when I'm out for one of my long exercise walks. But then people start doing those annoying tap backs, so I'll hear, Filbert laughed at a message. I don't even know what message Filbert thought was so funny, but I get to hear him saying he laughed at a message. I distinctly do not like tapbacks for that reason. 
All right, maybe all of these things don't bother you as much as they bother me, but I'm sure you've had some of these problems. But you're probably telling me messages is fine. Messages is where your friends and your family already are. And to be honest, most of my friends and family are on uh, Apple devices. So I don't really have that many green bubble people. But you just, you know, just putting up with fine while really annoying, that's not good enough. Imagine a world where you got them to switch to something much better and all of these problems melted away and you got so much more out of messaging. All right, let's start with like an elevator speech of how Telegram is so much better. First of all, it's cross-platform. It runs on all the Apple gear, runs on Android, runs on Windows, runs on Linux, and there are no blue-green bubble wars. Everybody gets to play together on an even playing field. Number two, the syncing between devices is nearly instantaneous on Telegram. And guess what? Telegram message threads never get tangled. Absolutely never, ever, ever. Seriously, never happens. I've never had a thread get tangled. You can also edit what you've written in Telegram. Think of that. You can fix typos. You can finish that sentence where you accidentally hit enter before you meant to send. It's absolutely glorious. If you're on iOS, iPad OS, uh, you just tap and hold and it reveals the edit menu. I assume it's the same on Android. And on the Mac, you can just use the up arrow to edit the last thing you wrote. Clearly, there's some Unix Linux nerds writing for Telegram. You can also delete messages. And not just for you, but for the other person too. This may be my favorite feature. One of the things I do all the time is I write a series of messages to Bart or Helma about some coding problem I'm having, and suddenly I see the solution because I've been describing the problem to them. Well, see, they're asleep anyway when I'm coding, so I just delete all of these messages and they never have to be bothered with me writing, never mind, at the end. I just delete just for, or oh, you can also delete just for yourself. Maybe someone sent you a food picture you really dislike food pictures of, say, meat, like I do, you can delete it, but only for you, so you don't hurt their feelings. I used to delete animated GIFs right after they were sent, but I don't have to do that anymore. Because a recent update to Telegram allows you in preferences to stop animated GIFs from animating after one cycle. That way you get all of the joy and none of the annoyance. This feature brings me great happiness. One of the challenges with messaging is finding the person you want to chat with in your list if you have a lot of people in there. In messages, you do have search, which works some of the time, but I think I've proven not all of the time. But in Telegram, you have real organizational capabilities. Just like with messages, you can create groups, but you can name these groups and give them fun avatars out of any image you like. You can create chat folders that in turn can contain individuals and groups. I have a lot of family members in Telegram now and group combinations of them. I was able to put them in their own folder so they're not all mixed in with my friends. There's a few standard folders you can enable too, one for unread, which is nice, and one for personal, which is all of your non-group chats. Now, I know I'm a big old grouch when it comes to animated GIFs and tapbacks, but I do really like how easy it is to add some fun to your conversations with Telegram. With Telegram, you can use stickers, which are giant static or animated cartoon images. I don't know why these make me happy, but they really do. If you're an animated GIF fan and you're not a rock star at it like Jason, you'll love that Telegram has GIF search built right into it with a great visual display of the different GIFs and a nice grid. I'm a fan of emoji, but I am so not good at it. 
On Telegram for Mac, you can get a view of all of the available emoji. You can do a search and even choose to deliver the emoji in giant animated form. In settings, you can even choose to have Telegram suggest a similar sticker before you send your emoji. For example, I can choose the emoji with the sunglasses on it, and if I do that, I get offered a woman with a boombox and sunglasses, a snail wearing sunglasses, a little rubber yellow ducky with sunglasses, a crab with a martini wearing sunglasses. Anyway, you get the idea. Let's face it, it's fun and we need more fun in our lives right now. Like any messaging app, you can send photos and videos and any kind of document through Telegram. But with Telegram, you have a two gigabyte limit on what you can upload per item. Seriously, you can send giant video files if you want. These files sit on their server unless you choose to download them. Well, they still sit on the server, but you can choose to download them, but you don't actually get them into your library. They don't, they don't go on your computer if you don't ask for them. I remember getting really annoyed when I discovered that by default, WhatsApp downloads any messages you're sent into your photos library. And so I found photos of meat in my photos library, and I don't like photos of meat. Telegram also lets you choose how to send files with or without compression. So if you want to send some dumb little screenshot or photo to someone, as you drag the image onto the Telegram window, you get two options, send without compression or send in a quick way. 90% of the time I send an image, I just send it the quick way. But when I was sharing my awesome photo of Comet Neowise that I captured with my iPhone, I didn't want it full of artifacts and compression. With Telegram, I was able to send without compression, and it looked gorgeous on the receiver's ends. The one time my family will flip back to messages is if we want to share a live photo. Sadly, Telegram doesn't yet support maintaining the liveness, and sometimes you just got to see that precious moment captured in the live photo. With Telegram, you could record and exchange audio messages, which I do often with my buddy Nightwise. You can also do video messages, but there are these weird little circular videos. It's really odd. I, I don't do them very often. With Telegram, you can even make voice calls, which is pretty slick, but you know, iMessages has this as well. I complained about search and messages, but I have nothing but good things to say about search and Telegram. Lindsay recently used the words okie dokie in a recent message. I can do a global search in Telegram for Doki, and it shows me all Telegram users with Doki in their usernames and all of the messages anyone has ever sent me using that word. It's kind of funny, it turns out a lot of my friends say okie dokie. Diane, Helma, Stephen, Dorothy, Bart, Steve, Pat, and my son Kyle, Klaus, and Kaylee have all written it to me, and I actually found a lot of messages I sent that said okie dokie in them. But let's say I only want to find where Lindsay said okie dokie. I can open the chat window for her uh, conversations with her, and at the top of the chat window, Telegram has another search button that allows me to search just my conversations with her. You can even go back via a calendar view and say, look for messages on a specific date. Compare that to messages that can't even find Lindsay, much less Lindsay saying okie dokie. Remember I said that Telegram stores the images and videos you send and receive in their cloud? Well, if you select the info option on someone's avatar, you can see sorted into little tidy tabs, every bit of media, images and videos, files, links, audio, voice, and GIFs you've ever exchanged with that person and any groups of which they are a member. It's really cool. I mean, you can get so much great information. 
Now, it's about time I try to answer a question I'm sure many are asking. What about security? Now, I'm not a security expert, and while I've read a lot about the security of Telegram, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just worried I'm not going to be able to explain this very well. I do know that if you're a member of the State Department or the CEO of a major corporation or maybe a protester, then the tool you want to use is called Signal from Signal.org. Now, with that set aside, Telegram does have a secret chat option, and all messages sent through this option use end-to-end encryption. I believe there's a concern in the security community that Telegram rolled their own encryption, though, and they won't let anyone see the algorithm, which makes security experts less confident. They haven't found anything wrong, but when they can't see inside it, you know, it's harder to say that it's, it's done well. Now, they do use the industry standard Diffie-Hellman key exchange. Secret messages are device-specific and are not stored in the Telegram cloud. You can also set self-destruct timers on your messages, deleting them on both ends for another layer of security. Of course, someone could take a screenshot of a message, but there's really not much to be done about that. They do also support end-to-end encrypted voice calls. But what if you don't use the secret chat option? Does that mean that Telegram would give up your data to a nefarious government? Well, they've made that really difficult. I'm going to quote their FAQ. To protect the data that is not covered by end-to-end encryption, Telegram uses a distributed infrastructure. Cloud chat data is stored in multiple data centers around the globe that are controlled by different legal entities spread across different jurisdictions. The relevant decryption keys are split into parts and are never kept in the same place as the data they protect. As a result, several court orders from different jurisdictions are required to force us to give up any data. Thanks to this structure, we can ensure that no single government or block of like-minded countries can intrude on people's privacy and freedom of expression. Telegram can be forced to give up data only if an issue is grave and universal enough to pass the scrutiny of several different legal systems around the world. To this day, we have disclosed zero bytes of user data to third parties, including governments. Well, I feel pretty good about that, so I'm choosing to use Telegram, but you know what? Everybody has to make their own decision. Well, the next obvious question is, wait a minute, why is this free then? Telegram is supported financially and ideologically by a man named Pavel Durov. His brother Nikolai developed their data protocol and made the API open for anyone to develop applications for it. The Telegram team had to flee Russia due to its local IT regulations and they're now in Dubai. Pavel says that the app will never have ads, it will not have marketing, but he may charge for additional services someday. Now there's one more thing I really like about Telegram. You do register using a phone number, but you can set your privacy such that you can only be searched for by your username, unless someone already has you by your phone number in your address book. This means I can tell you I go by at Podfeet in Telegram, and hey, you can come say hi to me there. But you can't find my phone number, and if you annoy me, I can block you never to be seen or heard from again. It is literally the best of both worlds for me. The bottom line is that all but a very few friends of mine have followed me over to Telegram, and after a little bit of use, they've come to really enjoy it. David is one of my last holdouts, but maybe this explanation will turn him to the light. I hope I've made a compelling argument so uh, that you too could diminish your use of messages, leave the tangled threads, the blue-green bubble wars, and the lack of search behind. Join me 
It's fun in Telegram. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can always follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to join our Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to do that one-time donation I talked about? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack group where Bart hangs out? Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Michael Babcock did for the first time today, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.